Welcome back, and thank you for joining me for another segment of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, your questions, comments, or your suggestions are always welcomed at CarlaReadsTheClassics at gmail.com. And now, let's jump into the final segment of Theodore Pratt's The Money. The armchair and the fight it started between George and Paul changed things among the musketeers. Their feelings for each other, especially those of Paul for George, were never the same after that. They met as usual at the clubhouse, but there was a certain restraint between them now. They thought of and adopted no new programs. They tried to act natural, if only because they didn't want to spoil the end of their otherwise wonderful summer. But they did not succeed too well. They were stiff when they discussed what they would do with their money after school started, right after Labor Day, less than two weeks away. Their president, who acted as if nothing was the matter between them, decreed, "'Don't think I haven't been thinking of that.' They wanted to know what he had been thinking. We'll just leave it here. Even if we're gone most of the day? It's been all right so far. But with us not here, maybe somebody... Nobody has yet. That's because we're here most of the time. It's under lock and key, besides being buried. Somebody might break in. It'll be all right. They wondered. Four of them now did not especially trust the fifth. The distrust infected them all so that none had much confidence in any of the others. As though to placate them about the armchair affair, George increased the weekly takeout to $10 apiece. None of them put up any objection to this, even on the grounds of risk. Each now possessed quite a sum of money, and those who carried it with them took it out and looked at it and then put it away again. They no longer bought extra things, but seemed mostly to add to the ta- add the takeout to their previous holdings. They still knew the value of the money, but the first zest of being wealthy had gone out of them. The only enthusiasm they could arouse in themselves was what they planned to do with their money in school. George planned to pay to get his English compositions written by other students. Catch me doing that stuff when I can get it done for 35 cents the way I did once. I can even pay 50 if I have to. Henny thought this was a great idea, except he would buy his math work. Joey said he was going to buy all his schoolwork done. Gracie and Paul didn't think this was right, though Gracie played with the idea of buying her Shakespeare papers, largely because she couldn't understand all that language. One morning, less than a week before school started, two of them, Gracie and Paul, arrived with disturbing news. Gracie, while the TV operated, gave hers first. When she came, a downcast look was on her face, and Henny asked, "'What's the matter with you?' "'My mother asked me what we did here all the time,' she reported. "'She asked before, and I told her, I mean, some of it, but last night she really asked.' And then she said, when school starts, I can't come here anymore with you. And I got to wear a dress practically all the time. You mean you can't see us anymore at all? Asked Joey. I guess I can see you, but not here at the clubhouse. She doesn't like that with all the rest being boys. They commiserated with her and said they'd miss her. Also, it threatened the five musketeers, reducing them to four. Gracie was concerned about her part of the money. 
You'll keep it for me? They assured her they would and would also turn over to her each week the takeout. Gracie remained doubtful about this arrangement. Paul had been showing signs of sharp impatience to impart the news he had. Now, he said, That isn't anything to what my father told me about finding money and keeping it. He looked up the local and state laws on it, Paul related excitedly, and it's pretty bad. What's pretty bad? George demanded from his chair. You mean the laws or what we've done? asked Henny. Both, said Paul. He said, Last night I couldn't sleep after what he said, and I don't know what we're going to do. Come on, Gracie urged. What did he say? Well, it's like this. I memorized it, or parts of it. First, he asked me if what somebody found was classified as treasure, and I said I didn't know. I pretended I was only asking, you know, not about our money. Paul wasn't altogether coherent, and because of this, they were upset by how much it indicated he was disturbed. So he asked me what form it was in, and I didn't tell him, of course, except I said, suppose it was money. Didn't he guess? asked Henny. No, he didn't think anything. Sometimes we talk like that about subjects. He likes to tell me things, saying maybe I'll be a lawyer someday like him. George turned around in his armchair where he sat drinking Coke and ordered, Go on! Then he asked me if it was modern money, and I asked him what he meant, and he said, Did I mean old coins like doubloons or modern money? And I said modern money, you know, like ours. What'd he say then? asked Joey. His blue eyes were wide. Then he asked if it belonged to anybody, and I said no. He looked at me a little funny then, and I got scared he was thinking something, so I said it wasn't a real case. I was just interested in the subject, and from then on he just told me. He said if the person the money belonged to had relatives or heirs, it would go to them, especially if a will was made, or even if it wasn't. Blood relatives came first, and then others, by marriage. Then he said if there weren't any relatives and there weren't any and there wasn't any will and somebody found it, it would belong to them. Okay, George said impatiently. What's the sweat? That's us. Except there's more to it. My father said it belongs to the finder under certain legal conditions. Legal, asked Henny. They didn't like that word. What are they? asked Gracie. First, it's the law that has got to be reported and turned in when it's held for six months for any rightful owners to claim, and if they don't, then it's turned back to the finders. It's the law? asked Henny. The law. What happens if the finders go against the law and don't tell about it? Just keep it, asked Joey. Ominously, Paul reported, Plenty. What's plenty? George demanded. Quoting, Paul detailed, Not to make inquiries about the owner in the eyes of the law is theft. Theft, cried Gracie. Ah, said George, we didn't steal anything. We just found it. The others attended to Paul for more. Meanwhile, the finder cannot sell, use, or spend any of it. Breathless, Henny wanted to know. What if he does? It depends on the amount of the money. For the amount of ours, he's committing a felony. What's that? asked Joey. A crime, Paul told him. A crime, Henny repeated awesomely. Gracie asked, then what happens? He can be arrested or fined or, or, Paul could not go on. 
Or what? asked George. In a small voice, Paul revealed, or sent to jail, or both. An excited murmur passed through the musketeers. Like we said a while back, Henny breathed. Paul announced in the sepulchral voice, That isn't all. Scared, Joey asked, What else? You're committing more than that. I don't see what else there could be, said Gracie. There is a lot, because even if you turn it in and get it back later, but don't pay any taxes on it, it's still worse. You mean the government wants tax? Both the state and the federal government, if you don't pay them, you got them after you too, and either one of them could send you to prison on top of the other. Also, they could fine you, both of them. It's called evasion of taxes, and where they send you is called the penitentiary. They tried to absorb this, but it was a shock that took a little time. In a frightened voice, Joey declared, We didn't do any of what you're supposed to do. We're criminals, Gracie decided. Before, said Henny, we decided we weren't crooks, but we are. Big crooks. Paul corroborated. The TV had kept going all through this, though George had remained twisted about in his armchair to listen and partake of the discussion. Now he switched it off, recognizing that this was a crisis. He rose and stood before them and addressed Paul. Who cares what your father says? Evenly, Paul replied, I do. Me too, said Joey. We all do, said Gracie. We've got to. Declared Henny. Derisively, George stated, His father doesn't know anything. Sure, he does. He's a lawyer. Lawyers know about things like that. Paul defended his father. My father knows, and he looked it up in the law books. Supposing he did, George scoffed. And suppose we didn't live up to what's supposed to be done. Do you think anybody else finding the money would live up to it? Maybe they would, said Paul, and maybe they wouldn't. Anyway, not many would. So we're like that. Like what? asked Joey. We're like what most people would do, George told him. Sometimes they get caught, Henny pointed out. It's taking us a long time to spend it, said Gracie, and there's a lot to spend. Before we're through, maybe we'll be the kind that get caught. And if we are, Paul outlined. The city can put us in jail for not turning in the money, and the state could put us in their kind of penitentiary for not paying taxes, and the government can too, in the federal penitentiary. The federal penitentiary sounded a lot worse than the state kind and far worse than the city's mere jail. Joey's voice rising to his shrill tones cried, We might go for life! His fear touched the others. Guilt felt before, now entered them deeply, and they tried to excuse themselves. Gracie remembered. I said when we found it we shouldn't keep it, Paul recalled. I said we're supposed to turn it in. I didn't know what we were doing, Henny declared. George used his best expression to get people to fall in line. Knock it off, to Gracie he said. Maybe you said we shouldn't keep it, but we kept it, you too. He turned on Paul. And maybe you brought up about being supposed to turn it in, but you kept it with us and you didn't want to tell anybody. He told Henny, You knew what we were doing. We all did, and we did it. He ignored Joey's going to jail for life as not being worthy of his comment. Henny wanted to know, What do we do now? 
they thought. Maybe we can still do it, said Gracie. Paul asked, do what? Turn it in. Maybe we could pretend we just found it, Gracie elaborated, and turn in what we've got left. We've got quite a bit. She snatched up her notebook. It's two hundred and eight thousand four hundred and eighty dollars and twenty-five cents. Joey looked hopeful. Henny said, it might work. Paul shook his head. We're already criminals. They wouldn't find out, Gracie argued. With all the money, said Paul, that much it'd come out. They'd come here and see, then, how we got our flag and the TV and the armchair and find out about Mr. Wesley Stone, everything. I guess they would, Gracie admitted. It's too late, Joey lamented. What with the city, the state, and the government all after us, Paul listed. So we can't do that, Henny decided. We aren't going to do anything, George announced. Not anything. We're going along just like we are, and nobody is going to turn anything in or say anything. As though they had not heard him, Joey reminded, You remember what the stone man said about maybe him getting in trouble over the money we paid him. We wouldn't want to get him in trouble, said Gracie. We sure wouldn't, Henny agreed. He might go to jail, said Paul, right along with us. Abruptly, Joey wailed, I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to go to the penitentiary. I don't either. Not me, George cried. Nobody's going to jail or to the penitentiary or any place else. But they were set on going to one or the other. They even leaned toward getting fined in addition, which Paul's father had also mentioned. They were listening to Paul now more than to George, no matter how emphatic George became, and they went over it all again, building it up still more, asking Paul if he could remember anything else his father said. Paul recalled only one more thing, which was really a repetition of those he had already recounted, but he quoted it. The law considers that when you find lost property, you have an obligation to turn it in over to the owner or into the authorities. The legal phraseology impressed them. There's a statute to that effect. Paul spoke as though, again, quoting his father. A statue? asked Joey. Paul explained the difference. Suddenly, Henny exclaimed, I hate the money! I hate it! George ordered, Stop that kind of talk! He strode up and down the small confines of the clubhouse. He tried deriding them to convince them of his view. You're all chicken, he accused. Well, you go ahead and be chicken. I'm not, and I'm telling you, we're going on just like, we're, just like we are. We're not giving up the money. We're not turning it in. We're keeping it. But maybe Detective Brawley will come back. He'll ask us some more questions. He was kind of suspicious before. George snorted. He hasn't come back, has he? They had to admit that. But if he does, I'll bet it's worse when he arrests you than Mr. McGill because Mr. McGill's just a policeman and he's a detective. You probably stay in jail longer, too. George ridiculed. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, if he doesn't come, maybe Mr. Gil Mr. McGill will investigate us. He comes by every day, right out on the street. Maybe he'll start to nose around, George began. Now, listen, maybe we could bribe him, Henny proposed. Who? asked Joey. Mr. McGill and Detective Brawley. Maybe we could give them $10,000 apiece not to say anything. Paul differed. We'd better not try anything like that, 
It'd be worse than the other, said Gracie. They don't like you to do that. Now listen, George repeated more emphatically than before. We don't have to bribe anybody because nobody's found out anything. Can you get that through your heads? They nodded, but not convincingly. And nothing's happened so far, has it? George demanded. They had to admit that, too, though not wholeheartedly. And nothing's going to, so forget this bribery business and forget Paul's father. They tried to forget Paul's father, but they could not succeed. They kept discussing and arguing it until noon, until it became noon, and they had to go to their homes for lunch. They had decided nothing, but they looked at each other uneasily when they parted. They were extra careful that day to see that the padlock on the clubhouse was securely fastened while they were away and before they came back to continue their discussion of their terrible predicament. George was the last to return. The others hurried back earlier than usual, and by the time he arrived, he found that they had tipped over his chair, dug up the money box, and put the chair back. The box was set on one of their chairs in plain view of all, and George demanded, What's the idea? We got it out, said Paul, because something's got to be done. George examined the seals and found them to his satisfaction. I told you nothing's going to be done. We're going along the same as usual. To illustrate this, George put the money box on top of the TV, turned on the machine, and took to his armchair. A favorite program of his, playing at the time, came on. It was not until the program had been on for almost a minute that Paul cleared his throat and announced to the back of the president's chair, We decided something's got to be done. At this notification of insurrection, George leaped out of his chair and faced them. He looked around at them all and then settled on Paul. Who decided? We all did, Gracie told him. What did you decide? George demanded. Just that something's got to be done. George continued to put ridiculing emphasis on his words. What? We didn't decide that, Joey offered. George made a sound of exasperation and made as if to turn back to his armchair and the TV. He stopped when Paul spoke again. I think I know what it is. Yeah? asked George. It's pretty drastic, said Paul, and it won't be easy, but I think it's got to be done. I think it's the only thing to do. You're doing a lot of thinking, George pointed out sarcastically. How about saying what you think? Well said Paul, after a hesitant glance around at all of them. I think what we ought to do is, well, burn it. They stared at him, amazed. Their gaze shifted to the corroded metal box on top of the TV. The lighted candle flickered in the silence that followed. The goblins and gargoyles of their shadows on the walls seemed to close in on them, about to attack, conquer, and devour them. Four of them each asked a question. George was incredulous. Burn it? Gracie asked. You mean burn the money? In a dazed tone, Henny repeated George's question. Burn it? All of it? Joey wanted to know. Their feeling of shock, mixed with their guilt, was so great that they did not even consider the suggestion in Joey's question. Several of them may not have even heard it in the face of considering the incredible idea of putting a match to all the money. 
Paul asked, What else is there to do? Angrily, George lectured, I'll tell you what there is to do. Just don't say anything like that again. Doggedly, Paul went on. That way nobody would ever know. They wouldn't find out what we did. Henny questioned. But set fire to the money. You said you hated it. Yeah, but would you rather go to the penitentiary? I guess I wouldn't. Slowly, Gracie admitted. I wouldn't. Me either, said Joey. It would solve everything, Paul pointed out. It sure would do that, said Henny. George raged. Will you stop talking like that? He whirled on Paul. And you, you quit saying things like burning our money. You haven't got any right to say a thing like that. Even if you want to burn your own, you aren't going to burn the others and not mine. They discussed this point. It became clear that if there was to be any burning of the money, all of it, not just part, would have to be included. To leave any portion would incriminate them all. Joey giggled nervously when this decision was reached and quoted, All for one and one for all. George ordered him to shut up and inform them again there wasn't going to be any money burning of anybody's. Until the afternoon, they argued, not wanting to decide, finally, shrinking from such a fateful decision, but with their fear mounting, drawn closer and closer to it. Jail was frequently mentioned. George had one argument that shook them. He said, You can't just burn up $208,480.25. Nobody can. They agreed that this was a horrible prospect, but so was jail, perhaps for life. George asked Gracie to figure out how much they had spent, all told, and when he had this figure, he pointed out, We've only spent $1,519.75. Why, we've hardly started and we'll never get a chance like this again as long as we live. They were agreeable about that argument, too, except that they might live in the penitentiary. At that, George accused, You're fools! You're crazy fools! Then they were all arguing and speaking at once. Their president's voice tried to rise above theirs, and even when it did, no one seemed to hear him, or, if he was heard, little attention was paid to him. At last, well into the afternoon, when they began to tire, Paul proposed, We got to decide. Maybe we can take a vote, suggested Gracie. George pounced on that. This time he yelled so that he had to be heard. We aren't going to take any vote. Wearily, Gracie wanted to know. You mean we go to jail instead? Flatly, George declared. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm not going to call for any vote. You've got to, Henny told him. You're the president. Joey's word sounded like an accusation. You bet I'm the president, George cried. And as the president, I say there isn't going to be any vote about burning any money. Quietly, Paul said, then there's only one thing to do about that. What? George demanded. We'll have to have an election for a new president. What? It's the only way we can get a vote about the money. You can't do that, George protested. It isn't according to, to whatever it is, uh, parliamentary law. It's the only way. Henny encouraged Paul. You fix it, Paul. Paul said, we got to have nominations. Gracie proposed, I nominate Paul King to be president of the Five Musketeers. George began, look here. Joey raised his hand as if in school to be sure to get the next one heard. 
With a triumphant glance at George, he piped, I second the nomination. Wait a minute, George said. Wait a minute. You can't do this. I'm the president, and I'm the only one who can call an election. All in favor, said Paul. George brought forth a desperate but ineffectual protest. What I say goes. Raise their hands, said Paul. Raise their hands, said Paul. Phonetically, George warned. It isn't democratic. George and Gracie raised their hands. George shouted, It is an American! Henny hesitated briefly and then raised his hand. Against? asked Paul. George, looking about and seeing that he had already lost the election, raged. I'm not going to vote in anything that isn't legal. There was a short silence during which the TV was heard. It had been left on, forgotten. George yelled, You're all communists! I'm the new president, said Paul. Involuntarily, his glance went to the blue armchair. George warned, Don't you go near it! I'm not interested in your old chair, Paul informed him. We got to get on with it about the money. He addressed the others, all in favor of, of, of doing what we said, raised their hand. The hands went into the air slowly this time, Gracie's first, then Henny's, and finally Joey's. Paul joined them with his. Against? he asked, and they lowered their hands. George shouted, You're crazy! It's carried, said Paul. We'd better not do it outside in case somebody comes along. He glanced at his watch. It's almost time for Mr. McGill. We'll have to do it in here. We'll pull the boxes aside and there'll be room. They began to pull the boxes to make room in one corner. George shouted again, You aren't going to do it! He took two quick steps toward, two quick steps forward and grabbed the money box and started for the door. Henny tackled him before he got there and brought him down. George's head was bumped against the side of the wall, shaking the clubhouse, and it dazed him for a moment. During the scuffle, the money box was removed from his grasp by Paul and handed to Gracie. George, recovering, struggled to his feet and made for the box again, but Henny and Paul, now joined by Joey, grappled with him. The struggle carried them back to the other side of the clubhouse, to the far wall from the door, and as they held George there, with difficulty, Paul cried, You do it, Gracie! Gracie, with a frightened look on her face, tore off the string and its seals. She jerked open the money box and started taking out the packets. As she worked, frantically, she took off the rubber bands and let the bills fall to the ground in a heap. Fluttering down loosely, they made quite a pile when they were all out. Joey, as he helped hold George, screeched that maybe they'd better take out a thousand dollars apiece. But no one heard him. George was screaming now, Don't do it! Don't do it! He hit at the others, and they hit back. He nearly got away. Paul cried to Gracie, Use the candle! Hurry up! With a little stuttering cry, Gracie snatched the burning candle and leaned down to apply it to the money. Several bills caught, then more, until the pile began to burn briskly, making a real bonfire. At that, George gave a great cry like that of a grievously wounded animal and made a frantic effort for freedom and achieved it. Shaking off Henny and Joey and thrusting Paul aside, he ran to the burning pile of money and started to stamp at it to put out the blaze. But the other three were on him again, and all he, su and all he succeeded in doing was to kick burning bills against the wall. 
those who restrained him, although involuntarily, also kicked until burning money was flying in all directions, some of it into the air. The, can the candle had been knocked over and gone out, but they could still see by the light of the TV and the fire. George fought ferociously, hollering loudly, still trying to save the money or what could be saved now. Gracie screamed when the wall blazed up. Set by the expensive firebrands, smoke billowed in the clubhouse. The boys stopped fighting and looked at the burning wall. Instinctively, they started for it, but the fire leaped into larger life and the smoke, thick in the confined space, now choked them. A blazing $100 bill flew into George's face and panicky, he slapped it away and started for the door. The others followed suit. They ran some yards away from the clubhouse and turned to watch. Smoke poured out of the doorway. From the inside, the TV still played, heard above the crackling of the fire, offering a lively musical accompaniment. The flag! Henny shouted. Joey hollered, We got to save the flag! Both he and Henny started for it, for it with Joey in the lead. The smoke, pouring out more thickly, stopped Joey. Henny kept on, but when he reached a spot near the doorway, instead of smoke, it now became flame shooting out, and he was beaten back. The fire licked at the flag, touching it, but not igniting it the first time. The second time it caught. The flame raced up the silk so fast it was like an explosion. One second there was a big American flag waving prettily in the breeze, and the next it was gone. Hot tongues of fire licked at their sign. It paid no attention to the warning, keep out, but curled it with a hot red breath. Then all for one, one for all went followed by the rest being consumed, blazing brightly. Flame rushed up the flagpole. As once the flag was raised, and in not too long a time it collapsed, bowing to the ground. Paul whispered, There goes two hundred and eight thousand. Four hundred came from Gracie, and eighty dollars, continued Henny, and twenty-five cents, finished Joey. As they watched, the fire burst forth through the roof of the clubhouse, gulping eagerly at the highly flammable tar paper, which set forth black smoke. Quickly, then, the walls collapsed, sending sparks flying. All this time, the TV had kept playing music from inside, right from the heart of the fire, as though celebrating it, but now it stopped. In its place, there came a series of staccato explosions they recognized as being the filled Coke bottles going off as their carbonated contents expanded under the terrific heat and blew up violently. There did not happen to be many of these on hand at the moment, but the explosions of what there were kept up to stimulate a short, fierce battle until they, too, stopped. The children were not startled this time when they heard the voice of Mr. McGill behind them. "'Say!' he exclaimed. "'I saw it as I drove by just then. "'I was going to radio for a fire truck, "'but I saw it wouldn't do any good. "'How'd it start?' "'The children didn't answer. "'Mr. McGill spoke as though he understood "'they were too moved to reply "'and commiserated with them. "'That's too bad, kids, "'losing your clubhouse like this.' "'George had not said anything "'since they ran out of the clubhouse.' After a minute more of watching, he made a choking noise deep in his throat and turned wrathfully on his fellow musketeers. Damn you! he cried at them. Damn you! Then he stalked away. 
Mr. McGill looked puzzled and stared at the others who remained to watch the fire. They offered no explanation of George's behavior. Mr. McGill said, I thought I heard music as I came up, but I guess I couldn't have. And I thought I heard something exploding, like cartridges in a fire. You didn't have anything like that in there, did you? Gracie made a gulping sound and, without turning to him, got out. Coke bottles. Oh, sure, said Mr. McGill. Gracie began to weep. Joey followed suit. Soon tears were streaming down the, the cheeks of Henny, too, though he tried to brush them away and deny them. Paul's eyes filled, but he blinked hard and managed to keep his from spilling over. I don't blame you, Mr. McGill told them. Losing your flag, too. He couldn't know. He couldn't know why four of the losers became weepers. He couldn't know what the new president, the vice president, the secretary, and the stockholder of the five musketeers wept for. Not all of it. In addition to the clubhouse and the flag, he mentioned there was the TV and Mr. Wesley's guest register and his obituary and the blue armchair and the notebook with their records and the wonderful summer's end. Most of all was the other thing. They saw, through their tear-filled eyes, a small oblong piece of lacy gray ash rise from the now-dying pier and float off into the air. And they wondered if that was a part of it, or, if so, how much? That brings us in to the end of Theodore Pratt's The Money. I hope you enjoyed the story. Stay tuned for our next reading, which... I'll announce in a week or so. Thank you so much for joining me.